Uh, today we're going to continue on with this um, letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And as we've been teaching this letter, as Steve and Chad have been going through it, they've been trying to make some points. And for example, Chad said, I, I stand on a rock higher than I. Trying to get this point that we need right thinking about God, that God is ahead of us, above us, everything, and in control, and we are here. He is our Lord. He is our, the one we worship. And to worship him rightly, we need to understand that relationship. Now, the first 11 chapters, Paul kind of goes through the gospel for the church in Rome because he wants to make sure that they get it right. He wants to make sure that they understand the gospel. And so he does that. And he goes through this in the first 11 chapters. Then in 12, he kind of turns things. And he begins to try and explain how we should respond to that gospel. For example, let's suppose you had a terminal disease. And there was a cure, but it cost a lot more money than you could afford. And suddenly, someone paid for the cure and gave it to you. How would you show your generosity to that person? How would you respond? What would you think about them? And what Paul is saying is that because Jesus has died for our sin, essentially provided the cure for the disease that, that we couldn't come up with a cure for, that we should respond to that. And in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, he begins to talk about how that should be played out in our lives. And Steve talked about chapter 12, and he talked about worship, and he talked about how our worship should be informed by our understanding of God, how we live with other people. And then last Sunday, Steve talked about how that should inform our relationship with governments. This week, I'm going to go into chapter 14, now it moves to a point where, where Paul begins to talk about our relationship with each other, with other believers. And then next Sunday, Chad's going to come back and he's going to help us understand that even more. He's going to extend it on as to how that relationship between believers should be. When I was young, a very long time ago, when I was young, about 10 years old, I remember that every Christmas, our family would gather and we would go to my grandfather and grandmother's house to celebrate Christmas with all the family. And all the uncles and aunts and, and grandchildren would be gathered in this great room. And my grandfather was a minister in the denomination I grew up in. And so it was inevitable that at some point the conversation would turn to some issue in, in doctrine or belief or what the Bible said or, or some issue about church government. And I remember one Christmas, families were debating whether their particular church should buy a pipe organ or not and whether that was a good investment. And the debate got kind of heated. And I remember two of my uncles, were, their faces were kind of getting red. And my grandmother, uh, oh, a uh, pastor's wife for years and one of the wisest people I've ever known, 
she kind of leans forward and she put her hand on my knee and she said, Craig, if you go to church, you fight. And then she kind of looked at everyone in the room. She, she understood. This wasn't about Jesus. This wasn't about celebrating the thing that really mattered, Jesus' birthday. And it certainly wasn't about building a relationship within our family. For over 2,000 years, there have been battles in the church. And Paul talks about this in chapter 14. We're trying to build a culture here. Steve Serbaugh is working very hard to pour into our lives to try and help us develop a culture of loving relationships, to behave with each other as mature Christians. And that's what this chapter, chapter 14 in the book of Romans, will deal with. So I'm going to pray, and we'll delve into it. But the thing I want you to remember is, we aren't all alike. And that's okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the people who are here. Lord, um, we pray that through these words that the Apostle Paul has given us and you have preserved, that we will have a better understanding of one another and we'll have a better understanding of, of who's in charge and why we should learn how to get along. So Lord, I pray for the active presence of your Holy Spirit in today's service and that in all we say and do, we bring glory, good attention to you. And it's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Like I said, Christians have been disagreeing from the beginning. And we've already talked about some of those things like disagreement over circumcision, uh, disagreement over eating meat offered to idols. Some Christians had actually begun to not eat meat. They had become vegetarians because they were afraid they might slip up and unknowingly eat uh, unclean meat. And so they ate just vegetables. Now, that seems really strange to me. You see, my idea of a perfect meal is a nice big 36 ounce slice of prime rib with a side of pork chops. Yeah, in the first service, there were a couple of guys that raised hogs and they were out there, you know, preach it, brother. You know, amen. The guy nudged his wife and said, the best sermon he's ever given. <laughs> you know. But the truth is, we fight over things that don't really matter. And what was happening, evidently, in the early church is some people believed in Jesus, gave their lives to Jesus, but they also understood that Jesus had freed them from the Jewish laws, that you, there were unclean things that they could not taste or they could not touch. While others, just as well-meaning people, also believed in Jesus and loved Jesus, but they still believed they needed to carry on some of those old traditions. And they were still kind of stuck in that religion. And so Paul addresses this. He addresses the issues that they have of, of some of the believers thinking they still need to, to live in a world where they don't eat certain foods and that they observe certain holidays, like maybe Passover or the Sabbath. 
And so let's enter into Romans 14, beginning at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, notice it says weak in faith, not weak faith, weak in faith. Paul's probably talking about the people who are saying, I still, I believe in Jesus, but I still need to abstain from unclean things. I still need to observe the holy days of the Passover. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? They're both, Jesus is their master, and they're both serving him. It is before his own master that he stands and falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So what Paul's talking about here are the weak in faith who are still trying to follow the old religion, and those who are strong but have gripped onto this freedom that Christ has brought, this liberty. And so if you look in your bulletin, I have a couple of blanks there for you. I think the first principle that Paul is teaching here is this. It's principle number one, accept one another. God has accepted you. Essentially, Paul is teaching that even though you disagree on something, still accept one another. Understand that the important thing is unity. The touch not, taste not crew need to get along with the ones that believe they can touch and taste anything. Then Paul goes on in verse 5, again in chapter 14. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his mind. So we should, we should search out why we believe the way we do. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats to honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains to honor the Lord and gives thanks to God. So both are doing the same thing. They're doing it because they believe that's what Jesus wants them to do. For none of us, none, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is the important point for Paul. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. The principle that I think Paul is teaching here in verses five through nine is this. Have your own convictions. Do what you believe Jesus is telling you through. Search out the scripture. The important thing is, that Jesus is your Lord. You understand that Jesus is here and you're here and you're doing it because of him. And then finally, in the last part of uh, uh, in chapter, in verses 10 and 12, this first section of Romans 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
Or you, why do you despise your brother? It's like he's talking to both groups. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul is pointing out, look, it's not up to you to judge. Don't judge others. We will each answer to God. So here in the first part of 14, Paul is saying, listen, be convinced one way or the other. Look into it, examine it, read the scripture, but understand that Jesus is your Lord and do what you believe that Jesus is directing you to do. Accept one another and don't judge each other over it. Both strong and weak Christians need to stop condemning each other because it is the Lord and he alone who has the right to assess a believer's status. See, Paul understands the importance of unity within a church. And he also understands that if there's mistrust and that unity breaks down, that the church will not bring honor to God. Judging can destroy that unity. I uh, saw on PBS a documentary recently uh, called The Boys of 36. And it's also a book which I read called The Boys in the Boat. It talks about a group of young men who came together at the University of Washington rowing team. And they grew up in, during the time of the Great Depression, okay? And this was a terrible time. Um, the stock market had fallen in 29, banks didn't have money, people didn't have money, people didn't have food. And some people began to give up their children. It's true that many families would give up their children because they believed that someone else could raise them and take care of them better. One such boy was a boy named Joe Rance. When Joe was 10 years old, his father and stepmother left him behind. And he had to work in a schoolhouse, chopping wood for the fire. And he lived there at night, keeping the fire going. Joe grew up without much of a family and he began to find odd jobs, anything he could do physically. He could cut lumber, dig ditches. One job he had, they actually tied a rope around his stomach, around his waist, lowered him over a cliff, and he used a jackhammer to work off some of the stones on the cliff. In high school, because of the jobs he had done, he developed incredible upper body strength. And so he became a very gifted athlete. He was noticed by the rowing coach at the University of Washington. And he recruited him. Somebody wanted him. Somebody wanted him for the first time. And so he went. Another young boy was named Don Hume. And Don's parents didn't abandon him, but they sent him to work in a pulp mill to make money for the family. It damaged his lungs, and he had a hard time getting over respiratory infections. But he developed tremendous coordination, and he became a leader. People followed him naturally. He also 
went to the University of Washington and joined the rowing team. Another one was named Bobby Mock. Now, Bobby Mock was known as the runt, and he was only 5'7", 120 pounds, and he tried out for the football team in high school, didn't make it. Tried out for the baseball team, didn't make it. Tried out for the basketball team, and he got on. And he didn't have very good, great athletic ability, but people noticed him because he was so competitive. He never gave up, no matter how far behind the team was. He was still playing just as hard as if they had a chance to win. These three boys all joined the rowing team. Some people say, back then, they did it for the food. Because if you were on the rowing team, they gave you meals. And on the rowing team, with their different gifts, they began to get very good. And they began to form a team that was very good. Now, today, rowing's not a very big deal around here, especially in Indiana, okay? But back then, in the 30s, rowing was one of the biggest sports. They would hire trains to actually take people to the races and go alongside as they raced. Rowing was a big thing back then. And these guys were a big deal. As freshmen, they won the National Freshman Championship. And everybody was shocked. Now, rowing is very different than other team sports. Now, all teams, you have to work together. But a rowing team has to do exactly the same thing in complete unity. As they row, you have to, as one guy is pulling back, the guy behind him can't be going forward because the boat won't go anywhere. They might cross oars. If one side is rowing faster than the other, the boat won't go on a straight course. It's critical in an eight-person boat that they do everything exactly the same. And this team did that. While they had different gifts, they used their gifts. In fact, one newspaper called them a symphony of motion. They were a perfect poem together, a machine. As freshmen, they won the National Freshman Championship, and people were getting to point at them and saying, you know, those guys are good. They're setting all the records. They could represent the United States in the Olympics. They could win the Olympics in 1936. And newspapers began to talk about them. But as sophomores, they had to compete for positions in the varsity boat with other rowers, with upperclassmen. And this competition led to true distrust and pride. They didn't like each other. Soon, there were actual fistfights between some of the teammates. And all of the teams began to lose. Whenever they would race, they couldn't work together. These boys who had been disposable, cast-offs by their families and by other people, not good enough. These boys felt not good enough again. And it looked like their hopes of winning the Olympics were dashed. Why do I talk about this team? Well, I do so because this reminds me of what a church is like. We all come in here with different gifts, different abilities. God has given them to us. 
But we have to do it together. We have to work together in unity. And if we don't, things fail. As Steve Serba always says, we have to all be pulling on the same rope. Yes, we have different abilities, but those abilities need to work together. And much like this rowing team, if a congregation begins to distrust each other, dislike each other, talk about each other, judge one another, it breaks down. That was true for the church in Rome 2,000 years ago, and it's true for us today. The truth is Christians will disagree with each other. But that doesn't, and that doesn't mean you can't discuss things openly. In fact, the ability to talk to another believer openly is a sign of mature believer. But we can't do so to build animosity or distrust or dislike. We need to have humility, the humility that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul continues in Romans 14 to explain this even more. He wants us not to cause one another to stumble. In verse 13, he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, because they had been, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself. So Paul's saying, yeah, you, you, you can eat pork. Okay, that's all right. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So Paul's saying, if they still believe that, don't worry about it. Let them go. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do, or by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So he's saying, your religious liberty isn't more important than other people. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul's telling the strong Christians must be careful not to cause the weak Christians to suffer spiritual harm by their insistence on exercising their liberty in disputed matters. So in other words, the strong Christian shouldn't invite the weak Christian over to his house and prove that he's a strong Christian by serving pork chops. He should serve vegetables. That the loving that person is more important than forcing issues that are peripheral issues. The strong must help the weak, not judge them or give up on them because that can lead to spiritual harm. The way Steve Serball said it a few weeks ago, and I'm paraphrasing him, don't allow your pride, don't allow your pride to cause problems with other people. Don't allow your pride to get in the way of your love for one another. Help them, don't throw them away. I was telling you about the University of Washington rowing team. They were demoralized by losses. The University of Washington rowing coach decided that he had to do something. Now, some things he did were about the sport, but he knew they knew how to row. 
He knew they knew how to be good. He saw the problem. They didn't trust one another. They didn't like one another. So he spent a lot of time trying to work on their culture and telling them what that culture should be, how they should react to each other, how they should treat each other. Soon, they developed a varsity boat of winners. The team had Joe Rance and Don Hume and Bobby Mock, who'd kind of been these throwaways before, but now they were wanted. The coach wanted them. The other team wanted them. Soon, they competed in the Pacific Coast Championship, and they won. Then they went to the National Championship and won. Then they went to the Olympic Trials, and they won. They earned the right to represent the United States in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Now, what we don't remember about 1936, most of us aren't old enough then, but what we don't remember is that this was a time when Adolf Hitler was trying to showcase the great German pride and people, the Aryan race. And the Germans had basically put out a great deal of athletes. Hitler and Hermann Goering were there at pretty much all the events, trying to cheer on the Germans. The Americans faced a great deal of competition. Other teams that were there were very good. The British team were hand-picked rowers from Cambridge and Oxford who had been raised up as children to row. Also there were the Italians, a group of longshoremen who, who had won a World Cup and were very strong men, powerful men. Also was a German team. And the morning of the gold medal race, they had won five of the preliminary races. The Americans also had a big problem. Don Hume, the guy who sat at the end of the row and set the speed for everybody, was the one that everybody copied, was sick. He developed a respiratory problem, perhaps pneumonia. His fever was very high the morning of the gold medal race. He could barely get out of bed. And so the coach went to the boys and he said, I've got to put in an alternate. I've got to pull Don. But the boys would hear nothing of it. They refused to row without Don Hume in the boat. And the coach said, but he's very weak. He's not very strong. And they said, then we must be stronger. We'll carry him. As the race began for the gold medal, the Americans got off to a terrible start. They were last out of six boats. They were also rowing against a headwind. They had gotten the worst lane assignment. Don Hume looked sick, and he wasn't rowing very well. They fell to the back, and most people believed they were going to lose. But Bobby Mock, this competitive young boy, would not give up. And he began to yell at the other team mates, pull, pull, pull. And he went and said to Don Hume, you've got to get it up. You've got to go. You've got to work. And Don Hume began to suddenly sat up and began to pull harder. The rest of the team caught on to the rhythm. Slowly, they began to catch up. Finally, they caught the pack. Then they slipped ahead of the Italians, ahead of the Germans and the British and won the gold medal. There with Adolf Hitler and Hermann Goering in the stands, 
These men, these disposable boys, had won the race. Why do I tell this story? Well, I tell this story because there's a quote in the book that really hit me. It's a quote that I think applies to us. I think after all they had been through, throwaways of the Great Depression, they knew something about each other. Here, in this team, this family, they were not disposable throwaways boys anymore. I think that applies to us. When I came to Life Church years ago, I felt disposable, a throwaway. I'd been rejected by a family, been rejected by people. I felt like I wasn't good enough. But I understood what Christ had done for me. And so I came here and I was accepted. The key thing about that is God has brought every one of you here and he has gifted us differently. But just like the team, without unity, just like the rowers, we all just thrash around in different directions and will fail to accomplish all that God has for us. But united, we can accomplish amazing things for God. Now, I want to bring this down to something very practical that we can do today. You can do it before you leave today. In your bulletin, I've got two applications for what Paul is trying to tell us here, what God is telling us through the Apostle Paul. First of all, focus on things that unite us, not on things that divide us. Focus on things that unite us, not on things that divide us. I know it kind of sounds cliche, but I'm telling you it's a big deal. There are things that unite us that are much bigger than any of the things that we would disagree about. The great unifying factor of people is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus has joined us together with our different gifts and different abilities because the things that are so important is that we belong to each other because we belong to Jesus. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. These things unite us above everything. Does that mean you don't have disagreements? No, not at all. I remember one day about four years ago, a young man came into my office and he said, I don't agree with something you taught the other day. And, and we sat down and we talked for three hours. And then we got together later and we talked for another four hours. And at the end of the seven hours, you know what? We didn't agree. We hugged each other. and told him I loved him. And he said, this is my church. I'm not going to leave. He was in the first service today. 
even though he disagrees with me on a particular point of theology, he's a mature young man in Christ, and I love him for it. And I respect him more than I can express it to you. The second practical application is this. Live so that those who disagree with you look to you as a model worth following. That young man is worth following. He may, he and I are going to disagree, but we don't do it in a disagreeable way. And you know what the major things we agree on? Don't be the reason that a brother and sister stumbles. When someone comes with disagreements, that's okay. Talk about them. Have your convictions, but also love one another. You know, looking back at my years as a pastor and elder, I've come to value church unity more than I did before. What I've noticed is every time that this congregation began to fight with each other and began to break apart over peripheral issues, God's removed his blessing from us. Things have not gone well. But when we've stayed united, when we've worked together, I've seen God do amazing things. Now, next Sunday, Chad's going to come up, and he's going to talk about chapter 15, which is really an extension of 14, and he's going to help us understand more about strong and weak Christians. But I'm going to grab just a couple of his verses to end with, because they remind me of what we should be like. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the rowers who had to row together, pulling on the same rope, we glorify God with one voice in unity. And so we're going to do that with praise here today as we close. And as you leave today, focus on things that unite us together, which are far greater than those that divide us. And live so that those who do disagree with you see you as a model worth following. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, help us remember that we belong to each other because we belong to Jesus. Lord, Help us to see that you didn't die for battles over pipe organs. Forgive us for demanding our own way and for judging others unfairly. Grant us a rebirth of Christian love in this congregation and in all your congregations around this globe. And may in the end, Lord, we all give you praise and glory. We thank you that Jesus brought the cure that we could not, could not pay for ourselves. And it's in his precious and holy name that we come before you and pray. And now we sing. Amen.